You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution? All right. We actually started on time this evening. This is awesome, right? This is crazy. This is new for us. Like in good Baptist tradition, we usually start 10, 15 minutes late. But we actually decided to start on time, and the best part of the sermon for me is going to be watching people for the next like 5, 10 minutes come in late. It's going to be awesome. You should all turn around and publicly scorn them. Um, kidding. Anyway, tonight, I know a lot of you want to go home early and watch the NBA Finals, mainly because you're pagan. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> uh, so we're actually going to be reading um, from the, what is it? KLBJV this evening instead of the NLT. It's the King LeBron James version. Um, yes. Yes, that was a joke from Brandon Pate. Ah, anyway, we got some new people here this evening, and I'm really glad you guys are here. I love you guys. I got a couple of family members of mine in the back. It's the first time visiting. I love you guys. I'm glad you're here. Um, anyway, but yeah, like I said, I know a lot of you guys kind of want to get home and watch the game, and uh, I don't care about sports, like Brandon said, I really don't, but I'm not heartless, right, so I'm going to be keeping my intro really short, you guys know I'm, I'm notorious for having like 10, 15 minute long intros, um, so I should be done preaching within the next two or three hours so you guys can get out of here, um, some of you are really nervous about that, aren't you, because I talk too much, anyway, anyway, everything I'm saying is bombing, Lord help me, uh, <laughs> So this evening, we're going to actually be continuing our study through the book of Acts um, called The People of God. And uh, if, if this is your first time here or you've missed the last few weeks, what we're doing is we're taking a look uh, this whole summer at the book of Acts. We just finished the Gospel of Luke a few weeks ago. And really what we're doing is we're taking a look at how did the early church live? Um, how did they live? What did they do? Um, what are some godly examples that they give us? And what are some ungodly examples that we want to avoid um, so we're basically just learning from the early church and what they did and what they didn't do and what they did wrongly. And this evening we're going to be looking at a chapter that deals with prejudices. Um, the, specifically prejudices that Jewish Christians had towards Gentiles in the first century. Um, and in doing that, we're going to look and, and see how God removes any biases and barriers that would keep us from associating with any group of people that we might have around us. Right, so we, we serve a God who has removed barriers that would have normally kept us from going to other people and reaching other people for the sake of the gospel because he is ridiculously merciful. Um, but in order to do that, in order to, to get to that point, we're going to have to read the whole 10th chapter of Acts together. All right, You guys are going to do great. I'm, I know you can. It's 48 verses, and the reason why we're going to do that, um, usually we try to take smaller chunks while we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, but it's because everything bleeds together in this chapter. Right? Like I spent like the first couple of days of, of this past week saying, okay, what few verses can I isolate? And I really can't. You, you can't leave anything out because it all goes together. And it's a lot easier for us to look at this chapter in its context all together at the same time than for me to try to piece it together uh, as we go and keep going back and forth. Um, so that being said, may God bless the public reading of his word. Acts chapter 10. Oh, also, if you're new here, there are blue Bibles. I always forget this. Uh, in the back of your pews. Take one home with you. They're super easy to read. It's the NLT. Really easy, good translation. Um, anyway, Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It's going to be here on the projector. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. 
He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. And as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. And he told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. And the same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you are looking for. Why have you come? And they said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. That's some other Christians that were there with him in Joppa. Verse 24. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up! I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. And Peter told them, You know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you've sent me. And Cornelius replied, Four days ago I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send some messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here, waiting before God, to hear the message the Lord has given you. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. 
And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one who all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Let's pray real quick. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Father, speak through me. Let me speak truth to this people. God, if it's just our own intellect, if it's just our own ability to speak, then we are completely hopeless to glean anything from your word. So Holy Spirit, please give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are ready to respond, and give us ears to hear, so that someone who's here that's not a believer could come to saving knowledge of Jesus. And those of us who are believers, that we would have our consciences pricked, and that we would respond with repentance and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there is, no one would disagree. That's, I think it's the longest passage I've ever read in three years of preaching, right? That's good times. Um, so there are, there are lots of information, there's lots of information in this passage. No one can deny that. But what I want us to do, since I, I'm not going to exegete 48 verses, you're welcome. Uh, since I'm not going to do that, I, I just want us to distill it all down to a, just a few simple concepts um, and, and dwell on them this evening. Um, just four things, really. One. I want us to think about, and we're going to address these things, the state of Cornelius' soul before Peter preached the gospel to him, right? Because if you're a nerd like me, you're wondering, was Cornelius saved before he heard the gospel? Because the Bible spoke really highly of him, right? So if you're into theology, that's going to be something that's going to bother you. So we're going to address that first. Second, we're going to look at Peter's views on Gentiles prior to the vision that he had. Thirdly, um, how God worked in Peter's heart to change his views on the Gentiles. And then fourth, what all of this together teaches us about prejudices and associating with people for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of telling them the gospel so that they might be saved. All right, so first thing, let's consider Cornelius. All right, what, what did this passage tell us about Cornelius? He is a Gentile, which if, you're, if you didn't grow up in church, that's fine. It just means he's not a Jew, right? He, he's not been circumcised in, in accordance with Jewish law. Um, he's not a full-on member of the nation of Israel yet. Um, so he's a Gentile. Uh, he's also a Roman centurion, uh, it says a Roman army officer in the NLT, but he's, he's a, like a captain in the Roman army. He's responsible for about 100 men. He's pretty wealthy because of that, um, pretty good social status. And he's also described in the first few verses as a devout, God-fearing man. Right Now, what does that mean? This is pretty important for us to know. A devout, God-fearing man. A God-fearer, depending on what uh, translation you read, is kind of a technical term. Uh, it, it's a term that the New Testament uses basically to describe a Gentile who believes in the God of Israel. Right? Most Gentiles back then worshipped like dozens or hundreds of gods. Right? Think like Zeus and Hermes and all those guys, which is super interesting stuff, but garbage. Um, but this guy, he believes in the God of Israel. He's mo- he, he believes in one God. He's monotheistic. Um, He believes that the Old Testament scriptures are the word of God, um, and he follows the moral law found in the Old Testament, right? So he's he's following the Ten Commandments, um, but, right, for all of those good things we can say about Cornelius, he is not circumcised. Like I said, he's not a full-on part of God's people of Israel at the time, right, which means that he didn't 
follow or adhere to any of the ceremonial law in the Old Testament. Like he, he would have observed the Sabbath, um, which was Saturday for Jewish people, but he wouldn't have he wouldn't have been down with all of the feast days. He probably didn't celebrate Passover, um, all the ceremonial stuff. He didn't follow the dietary law. He would have still ate pork. Right on. He would have still ate that stuff. Um, he would have wore fabric of two different kinds. So he didn't follow a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament that was ceremonial. Um, but at the same time, right, so that seems like some, some marks against him. Um, the Bible describes Cornelius as devout, right? So for him believing in the God of Israel and being uh, very moral and adhering to the moral law, he was like very, very, very strict about those things. Uh, verse 2 says that he gave to the poor. And he prayed regularly, right? Um, the reason why, it's kind of funny, he sees this angel, this vision of this angel um, at, at 3 o'clock, because that's actually a time that, that the Jews would have prayed regularly. So he's probably praying three times a day, three or four times a day, giving his money to the poor. All that to say this, him being devout, Cornelius is an incredibly moral, generous, kind man. You, you, can't, you can't deny it. The Bible speaks really, really, really highly of Cornelius in, in, in the first few verses of Acts 10. So the question that I asked, and it bothered me for a few days while I was studying for this, is was Cornelius already saved before Peter preached the gospel to him? The short answer is no. Right? So let's just put that to, let's put that to bed. Right? He was not saved. For all the good things that we can say about Cornelius, he was not saved from the wrath of God. If Cornelius would have died before he heard Peter preaching the gospel to him, Cornelius would have went to hell. Right? And the reason why I can say that, and then we're going to argue this through for a little bit, is the Bible is crystal clear on the fact that salvation is only by faith in Jesus Christ, right? Like if there's one thing, like, like a child can read a lot of passages from, from the New Testament, and we can deduce that, right? Small children can get that. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, like just slam dunk for this. Peter, right, same guy from this, says, says this in Acts 4. He says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, right? So let's see what else, what else does Acts say, um, about salvation, um, and to make this argument that Cornelius wasn't saved before he heard the gospel preached to him. This is important that we do this, um, and I, want to re- I wanted to do this just from the book of Acts, um, because a lot of people argue that like Paul had more insight in Romans than Peter and the people in Acts had, which I think is just completely bogus, because the gospel has never changed. Uh, just laying that before you, don't ever buy that kind of junk. Um, the gospel doesn't change, but so let's take a look at how Acts alone proves to us that Cornelius was not saved until he heard and believed the gospel. Um, Acts eleven fourteen. 14. Um, I'll, I'll save you from us reading the whole 11th chapter of Acts. Uh, Peter, basically, in the first few chapters, he's retelling what happened to Cornelius, right? Because some people are kind of upset that he was associating with a Gentile, which we're going to get into in a little bit. And, uh, and Peter is retelling it from Cornelius's point of view. And an angel, according to Cornelius's testimony comes to him and says, summon for Peter, right? Ask for Peter to come, and he will show you how you and your family can be saved, right? As in, like, this is future tense. Like, you're not saved yet, but he will show you how you can be saved, which is kind of cool, too, um, that Cornelius was actually probably praying that God would show him how to be saved, right? So God actually answers that. And, and Peter must tell him the gospel, Right? Um, that, that's what I'm deducing from, from chapter 14 or chapter 11, verse 14, is that Peter must tell him the gospel, that the message is essential. He was not saved yet. Or we could do Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Um, 
what Peter does, is, or what he does not do, is go to Cornelius and his family and say, hey, God sent me to tell you that you're already saved. Right? That's not what he does. Verse 43 of chapter 10, he actually says that faith in Jesus is what brings about forgiveness of sins, that the prophets have all testified to this. Um, and, in, and in this last one, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 5. This was, a, this was just like the end of it for me. Uh, this is really interesting. Acts 10 says that Cornelius is a devout man. But Cornelius isn't the only devout person found in the book of Acts. Uh, if you guys know your Bibles at all, Acts chapter 2 is the first gospel sermon in the New Testament, right? That's not preached by Jesus. I'm sorry, I clarify that. Right, so Cornelius is not the only devout person found in Acts, because Acts 2.5, it says that the Jews living in Jerusalem, they were devout Jews. And what does Peter say to them? Repent, or you're going to suffer the wrath of God, right? That he demands them on behalf of Jesus to repent and believe. Right? And the devout Jews actually would have had a leg up on Cornelius because they were circumcised and they obeyed the ceremonial law. And they're still demanded to repent and believe. Now, I know that might seem tedious that I wanted to, to, to go through those things. But all of those things culminate together to drive home the point that only faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ saves. Not morality. Not being a good person. Cornelius knew what the Bible said. Cornelius would have went to the Jewish equivalent of church. He would have gave his money away. He was faithful to his wife, no doubt. So he, he was straight. He was doing all of these very moral things in accordance with what the Bible says. But he was not saved from the wrath of God. Morality cannot save you. Being a good person cannot save you. Paul makes this so ridiculously clear in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Romans and the whole book of Galatians. Right? Like, and it's this. This is the point that he makes. Obedience to the law will not save. That all that the law can do is show you what's wrong with you, but it could never, ever save you. He says, he says works of the law has, ever, has never saved anybody. And I don't want us to ever forget that. Our salvation is based, our hope is based on Jesus Christ and his work and the fact that he was perfect in our place and his perfection and sacrifice covers our failure. Right? Being a good person will send you to hell. There are plenty of people in the United States, in the world actually in general, that, are, that have Christian morality that are going to hell whenever they die. I know a lot of them. You probably do too, right? If our goodness, if our being a good moral person is apart from faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and his perfect life in our place, you will go to hell, no matter how good you are. Galatians 2.12, Paul slams this home to us. He says this, I'll paraphrase. If someone could be saved by being good, then Jesus Christ died for no reason. And we know that God would not give up his son for no reason. He says, I don't count the grace of God as meaningless. Jesus died for a reason. Right Now, this idea that Cornelius, or that just being a good person can't save you, or that you could be really moral and still go to hell, that might make some people angry in here, or at least uncomfortable. Right? And I think that that's because like, we all know some people who live decent lives by our standards. Right? Like comparatively towards other human beings, we see like, you know, he's, he's faithful to his wife and he gives his money away and he pays his bills and he's not an alcoholic and he's really good to his kids. You know, like those kinds of people. And, and, and like I said, they're comparatively good. We can compare them to, to someone that's in active addiction or a drug dealer or a child molester and say, you know, person A is way better than person B. 
but they don't follow Christ or have faith in, in him. And we don't want this to be true of them. We don't want it to be true that they're going to hell even though there's a good person. And we get angry at this fact. And we, get, and we think, like, I don't know if you guys have done this. You ever leveled a charge against the Lord? It doesn't work out in your favor ever. Like, he just shows you how stupid you are whenever you read the Bible a little bit more. But, like, what we want to do in that moment is say, God is being unfair. That God is being un- unfair with this person. That he would still send Cornelius to hell had Cornelius never heard the gospel. Or that he would send my friend Jim to hell because he doesn't believe the gospel even though he's a good person. But I just want to lay this before you. Getting angry won't change the truth. Being uncomfortable won't change the truth. Right? Like I'm not good at math. And if I'm doing a problem and X equals 11, no matter how much I pout or how angry I get or want to say that the teacher is a person who wrote the the, the problem is stupid. It doesn't change the fact that X equals 11. And it's the same way. Truth is absolute. And something else I want to lay before you too is, consider this. It is ridiculously merciful that God made one way for us to be saved. Considering we deserve none of it. That we were in rebellion against Him, spitting in His face daily. And He would make one way for us to be saved. And that it would come at such a personal cost to Him, the death of His Son. Him pouring out wrath on His Son in our place. This is mercy that God would give us one way to be saved, right? But if anything, right, if this makes you uncomfortable or, or, or angers you at all or makes you think God is unfair, if you're a Christian, this should really fuel your evangelism. <laughs> this should really fuel all of our efforts um, to win people to Christ, right? Whether they're strangers or whether they're our friends. I can't push this enough. The reason why that should, should just push us towards evangelism is because apart from faith in Christ, they will perish. Now, just to make this real, like, my aunt is one of the most moral people I know. She's generous most of the time. She's only slept with three people and she's been married three times. She's a pretty moral woman and she will perish in hell. She will burn in hell forever if she does not repent and believe the gospel. Our friends and even strangers that we know that are very moral people, they will perish. And until we get that through our heads, we will not care enough to evangelize. Being a good person is not ever going to be enough. But to get back more on point, in the end we see that Cornelius was indeed saved because he believed the message about Jesus that Peter preached. Right? But we need to understand this. Before Peter would have considered going to Cornelius' house to preach to him, before he would have even considered the idea at all, God needed to work in Peter's heart, right? And that's because Peter was a Jew and Cornelius was a Gentile, right? Now, if you guys don't know much about your Bibles, this is going to be uh, an interesting history lesson, and I just want to preface this. This is not anti-Semitic, right? It would be really, really, really ironic for any Christian to be anti-Semitic because Jesus was Jewish. I'm just throwing that out there. It'd be super ironic. Um, so let's consider this for a minute. Peter's a Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile. What are the Jewish views on Gentiles in the first century? They didn't like them. <laughs> right? Might be the understatement of the evening, honestly. Like, Jews did not like Gentiles. By and large, Jews hated Gentiles back then. There were maybe some exceptions here and there, like Jesus. Uh, but, like, uh, by and large, hated them. Um, Jews would have considered Gentiles unclean, all right? And some of you maybe are starting to piece this whole text together in your mind now. Uh, They considered them unclean, which means that you can't go around a Gentile if you're a Jew. Um, 
They're ceremonially unclean. And, and the reason why they viewed them that way was partly because Gentiles did not follow Old Testament ceremonial laws about food and ritual purification, right? Like in some of those Old Testament ceremonial laws, are like you can't touch dead things, right? Like if you do, you're unclean for a certain amount of time. Like you can't work with dead animals. Like if you're like a fur trader or something like that, you're considered unclean pretty much all the time because you're always touching dead stuff and they're probably unclean animals in general. Um, you can't eat certain foods, Right? This is one of the reasons why I love Acts chapter 10. It's because we're allowed to eat bacon and pork chops and all kinds of stuff now. But you couldn't, eat, you couldn't eat certain foods back then according to the ceremonial law. And certain acts made you ceremonially unclean. If you ever feel like looking up this stuff, it's in Leviticus. The vast majority of it. Check it out. It's really interesting. Uh, so because of that, Gentiles were considered unclean. But in addition to the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, there were also these man-made, which I would just call them unbiblical, traditions and taboos put on associating with Gentiles, right? These are things like, and this is not in the Old Testament at all, um, there was these cultural taboos that like the, the Jewish preachers of the day would say like, going into a Gentile home made you unclean. Just by nature of just going into their dwelling, it made you unclean, stuff like that, right? Just big barrier-inducing things to keep Jews from associating with Gentiles. And all of these things, ceremonial law, um, and, and cultural tradition and social stuff like that all culminated to make Jews basically racists against, against Gentiles. Um, and just laying this before you, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the Old Testament law of God. The reason why a lot of Jews became racist back then, it was a product of sin and a misunderstanding of Scripture, right? which I would argue is, generally speaking, every problem that we have. <laughs> it's a misunderstanding of Scripture and our own sin. Um, so, Jews had like almost no contact with Gentiles back then. They maybe had business arrangements with them, or there would be like public arrangements, like we see like Jews going to um, Pontius Pilate, a Roman in the Gospels, right? So maybe there was business or public stuff, maybe, but they didn't like it, right? They were really, really, really prejudiced against uh, Gentiles. But we, we know this, even if they would associate with them for business purposes, there was definitely no personal friendships allowed whatsoever between Jews and Gentiles. Again, you, if you were a Jew, you wouldn't go into a Gentile's home. You wouldn't have them come into your home. You would not eat a meal together, either at your house or their house or in public. You considered a Gentile your enemy. Right? Just to drive this home, I was talking to Brandon about this. There was actually a rabbi put this, uh, I don't know what book it was in, but there was a saying that was fairly popular back then that said, if you see a Gentile woman in childbirth, don't help her even if she's going to die because you're just bringing another Gentile into the world. Right, that, that kind of sums up, I think, pretty clearly how Jews viewed Gentiles back then. All that to say this, Peter is a Jewish Christian, right? Which means he grew up with these views and no doubt still had many of them, even though he had come to faith in Christ, right? His prejudices didn't just erode because he came to faith in Jesus. He was still a sinner, right? It's this beautiful thing that we believe that we're still sinners, but we're saved by the grace of God, but we still have a long way to go. Right? His prejudices, his prejudices didn't just erode because he came to faith in Christ, and neither do ours. Right? And this is the uncomfortable part of the sermon. Everyone has prejudices. Maybe not racial. I'm not saying everyone in this room is a racist. <laughs> That'd be kind of funny to see your reactions. I am not saying that everyone in this room is a racist, uh, but everyone deals with prejudice on some level. Right? You don't believe me? Let me just ask you this. Who comes to mind whenever I ask this? Who don't you like? Right? I'm not talking about Amy at work who just talks too much. I'm not talking about her. Um, there's no one named Amy at Mule Town, by the way. Just 
just as a joke, right? But like, like what group, what group comes to mind whenever I say, who don't you like? Right, some that I see in the worldwide church and in America especially. And honestly, some of these that I'm getting ready to name are here. Not all of these, but some of these here at Revolution um, would be this. Does homosexuals come to your mind? You really just don't like homosexuals at all. Just for that reason. Or the lazy poor. I don't mean the poor. I mean the lazy poor who won't work at all. Do you not like them? People who are actively in drug addiction? People of other religions, like Muslims. There's a key word right now in America. Do Muslims come to mind whenever you think of who you don't like? Atheists? I see a lot of Christians that don't like to associate with atheists at all. And then here's here's a real one for me. I'm just being totally honest. Liberal Christians. And if you listen to the podcast, they use the finger quotations for the word Christian. Liberal Christians. Right? Like they think like God doesn't really care about sin and doesn't really have wrath and the Bible's not really true and Jesus may or may not have died and came back from the dead, right? Like liberal Christianity, which is not Christianity, do they come to your mind? You can see who I was thinking about whenever I had to write this sermon. Everyone has prejudices. Are they the uneducated, right? People who just dropped out of school. Are they Republicans or Democrats, right? I know I'm, I'm kind of taking some time to really like list some, some different groups. I just really want us to get, get in your mind right now for the rest of this sermon. Who are they for you? What group is it that you don't like? And this doesn't necessarily mean that you hate them, right? Like you don't want to go out and kill all the Democrats or Republicans that you see. Um, but you'd rather avoid them. You'd rather not go to the lazy poor. You'd rather not go to the people in active addiction. You'd rather not go to the homosexuals for the sake of the gospel. Kind of like Jews wouldn't go to Gentiles. Who is it for you? Right? These are generally, if we're going to be honest, these are generally, whoever comes to our, our mind, people who are living a life full of habits and beliefs and attitudes that go against Scripture. That's, that's, I think that's a fair like, summation of that. These are people whose, whose lives, attitudes, and beliefs go against what the Bible says. And we can't stand them. We can't stand them. And what we do because of that is we make jokes about them. We make jokes and we, we call them names. Maybe to their face, maybe behind their back. We talk about them in their groups whenever we're huddled together right, in our evangelical circles. And we talk about them like dogs. And we dehumanize them in our minds. And we forget that these are human beings made in the image of God. Right? Which means they have inherent worth and inherent dignity and value. And what we do is really, is we call them unclean in our minds and we walk the other way when we see them coming and we're at peace with it. We are completely and utterly at peace with it. And just a side note, if you're here, obviously I just kind of railed on liberal Christians and liberal Christianity for a while. I want to clarify something. I am not saying that everyone on that list is okay with God. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Only repentance and faith in Jesus will save someone, which is a turning from your sin and a turning towards Christ, a desire for Christ and to live in the way that He tells us to live and trusting that He has saved you with His life, death, and resurrection. That's the only thing that saves. I'm not saying that everyone is okay with God. And I am also not telling you to wink at people's sin and affirm them in it as they head to hell. I'm not telling you to do that either. But can't we already see that the kinds of attitudes like that, that we tend to have towards different people groups or any person in general, can't we at least begin to see that that is not pleasing to the Lord Jesus? Can we not see that already? 
Right? But why do we have these kinds of feelings? Why do we have these kinds of prejudices towards people? Because we think we're better than them. <laughs> I mean, like, really. Like, that's just down to brass tacks. You, whenever you are prejudiced against people, and I'm, when I say you, I'm including you in that. I don't know how. Right? But, like, we. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> we. Right? We think that we are better than other people whenever we have prejudices. Right? And what does that really reveal to us about ourselves? Especially if you're a Christian. Let's just think about this for a second. If you're prejudiced towards any group or any person, or against them, rather, you're not recognizing yourself as the sinner that you are. You're not recognizing yourself as someone who is in rebellion against God on something at some point in your life every day, and that you actually deserve to go to hell every day. And the only reason that you don't get it is the sheer mercy of God given to you through His Son, Jesus. It's not on your merits or your own morality or how good of a person you are at all. Because even on your best day, you still sin. Even on your best day, you still think, think something that you ought not to do. But what do you do? You justify your own failure. You justify your own sin. You say, but, right, like I'm not a liar, I just tell a lie occasionally. Or I'm not an adulterer in heart, I just look at pornography occasionally. Right? And you justify your sins so that you can continue to look down on other people. Which leads us into the next reason that we're prejudiced, is we compare ourselves to others instead of God's perfection in Christ. We say, I'm not a pedophile. I'm not a child molester. I'm not, you know, whatever it is, that, that the, person, the group that we don't like, I'm not a homosexual, right? So I have to be a little bit better than them, and we can maintain our prejudice because we don't have to recognize what we actually are, which is a sinner. And furthermore, if we're prejudiced, we're really not understanding this little phrase that Christians love to say, saved by grace, unmerited favor. If we're ever prejudiced for any reason, what we really reveal in that moment is a lack of understanding of the gospel. That we're saved by God's mercy. That he says, I will give you unmerited favor instead of giving you my wrath for all of eternity. That's the only thing that saves us. It just pleased God to choose us and save us. Not our morality and not our goodness. Prejudice reveals a fundamental misunderstanding in the gospel. Or of the gospel. And all that to say this, we must repent. I spent a fair amount of time in, with, with a repentant heart about my views towards liberal Christians. Right, we must re- repent of our crude jokes. We must repent of our unkindness, that we wouldn't care about these people in their eternal state. We must repent of our avoidance, that we wouldn't pursue these people. We must repent to God and ask Him to be made clean and to change our hearts and turn us from our prejudices. And then if we've publicly offended anyone, we need to make it right with them if we can. That's a principle in the Old Testament. That if you do wrong to someone, that you would try to rectify the situation with them because you've been reconciled to God. We must repent for our prejudices. But God, getting back into Acts 10, God revealed to Peter that Peter's prejudices are to be removed. And he did that through a vision in verses 9 through 16. Right? And just a recap of that. Peter's up on the roof praying, flat roof. Right? He's up there praying. And he sees a vision come down, or a vision of a sheet come down. And there's all these animals on it. And different translations say it a little bit better than the NLT. It's like all kinds of clean and unclean animals. And the Lord tells him, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. And Peter tells him, no. He says, I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never touched these animals. I don't go around these kinds of animals. 
And the Lord says back to him, do not call common and unclean what I have made clean. That's the vision that he sees. And Peter understands that. Later on, we, we see that he, he, he understands that God is saying, there are no more unclean people that you're allowed to avoid. There are no unclean people that you're not allowed to associate with. In that vision, God is declaring that there is no reason that we shouldn't pursue people from every group. Right, Peter understood his vision that way. And how do I know that? Because he goes to Cornelius without objection. Three Gentiles show up to his house after he sees this vision. And he's like, yeah, the Holy Spirit told me to go with you, so I'm just going now. Right? He gets it. And what he does, because he gets that vision, he understands that God is saying no one is unclean anymore. He lets go of his prejudices for the sake of the gospel so that he could go and preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins to them so that they could be saved. I think in Peter's heart, he begins to say to himself after he sees this vision that there is no one that I will not go to. There is no group that I will scorn any longer and I will lay down my comfort and my personal preferences so that anyone can come to saving knowledge of Jesus. I think that's what Peter's heart began to cry out. I will no longer scorn anyone. I will go to anyone. It's also good to note that in uh, verses 34 and 35 and also in Acts chapter 11, um, it shows us that Peter did not care what cultural taboos mandated. Chapter 11 of Acts, some, some Jewish Christians come and they level a charge against Peter and say, you were in a Gentile's home and you ate with him and you were associating with him. And Peter is totally prepared to give a defense. Hey, I saw a vision from the Lord who said that they're not unclean anymore. And he saved them. And they all shut up. And they say, glory to God. <laughs> right? Like they get pumped over it. But that says that in that moment, whenever Peter goes to them, or goes to Cornelius as well, and he says, you know it's against our Jewish customs, right? It says our laws, but more it's, it's against our taboos. It's against our taboos for me to even come into your home, but I don't care. He didn't care what people would say. He was willing to break the religious norm, right? And God knows we live in the Bible Belt where you can't associate with people who drink beer or people who are homosexual or people who, like, practice other religions, right, or people who smoke cigarettes and stuff like that. Like, you know that that's, like, the cultural taboo around here. That, like, you're not allowed to go around those people. What is it, the saying, like, don't drink, smoke, or chew or run around with those who do? Anyone ever heard that one? Yeah, right? But here we see Peter doesn't care. Peter's not indulging in those sins with them. Those aren't his best friends, but he is willing to break the religious norm and defend going out to the unclean for the sake of the gospel because he wants to tell them of Christ. And Peter says something astounding before he preaches to them. In verses 34 and 35 that I just mentioned, he says, he says Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Which doesn't mean he accepts them because they're so moral. A better translation of the Greek is, in every nation, he welcomes those who fear him and do what is right. And the most right thing anyone can do is put their faith in Christ. He's saying anyone is welcome. So Peter fully embraces and understands that God has opened salvation and welcomes people to be saved regardless of what group that they're from. That being said, God still demands their repentance and sin is not condoned. But people from any group can be saved. And Peter preaches the gospel to them. 
He tells them about salvation from judgment, that Christ is coming to judge both the living and the dead, and that, and that there is salvation and forgiveness of sins and salvation from judgment all through Jesus and what he has done. And then the Spirit comes on the Gentiles and they are saved. And that shows Peter this. God can save anyone. Which I know, like, that's a pretty common statement for us. and doesn't really blow the doors off of us. But that would have freaked Peter out. God can save anyone. And I think, similarly to us, it should freak us out because it should tell us that God can even save our Gentiles. The people that we don't like, the people that we think are beyond the pale, God can call them to himself, regenerate them, and cause them to believe the gospel. Remember that. So this whole story should really inspire us to put our prejudices aside. Right, this, rather, this narrative, this historical account, I don't want to call it a story, I'm sorry. Right, but this should really inspire us to put our prejudices aside and pray that God would kill the sin in our hearts that cause us to think and feel this way about other people groups. And we should, we should be praying for a heart change on this, and we should be laying down our prejudices so that we would then befriend and love the very people that we are now currently trying to avoid, and in doing so, proclaim the good news about Jesus to them. That's what we should be inspired to do. Right? Because God is telling us here in this chapter 10 of Acts, and He's telling us this in no uncertain terms, that we are forbidden to call people unclean. We're forbidden to call them unclean and, 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 or, or, and we're forbidden to proclaim that someone is beyond God's saving power. You always hear people say, like, judge not. That's actually what judge not means, is to declare that someone is beyond God's saving grace and that there is no chance of salvation for them at all. Right? Our Gentiles in our lives may be living horrible, godless, blasphemous lives, but we are called out by Christ to go to them with the gospel. And what's the prime motivation of this story? I have a, a, a prime motivation for our evangelism. I got a couple of things. One, why should we be motiv- motivated? That first point that we made about Cornelius. Right? I, don't ever, I try not to make points for no reason. It all circles back. The first point we made about Cornelius' salvation is that no one can be saved unless they hear the gospel, turn from their sins, and believe on Christ. And they can't hear if we won't tell them. Paul makes that really clear in Romans 10. And and we've read it enough times. I've read it to you guys enough times. We're not going to do that this evening. But it's our job. He says, how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them unless they're sent? That's why the scriptures say, blessed are those, or blessed are the feet of those who come with good news. Our Gentiles, these people that we try to avoid and that we don't like, they will burn in hell for eternity if we don't run to them with the gospel. That has to become real to us. And we as Christians, we cannot be Christians if we're at peace with that. We cannot call ourselves Christians if we're at peace with people going to hell around us, even if we don't like them with our knee-jerk reactions to them in their lives. It is the epitome of hatred not to warn people of the wrath of God to come against unbelievers. That's the epitome of hating someone. And God will not hold us guiltless if we refuse to warn them. Read Ezekiel if you think I'm wrong. The biggest thing for us to remember, the second thing and the biggest thing for us to remember in this whole thing is that you and I, if you're a Christian, 
You were once a Gentile to God. You were unclean and wicked and disgusting in his sight. Everyone always wants to say, we are all God's children. No, we're not. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were by nature children of God's wrath and his displeasure. We were unclean. We were the ones who, who made him sick. We were the ones who were in total rebellion against him, spitting in his face with our actions. We may have thought that it was just apathy, but it was actually hostility according to the Bible. We were far from Christ, and we were alienated from God's favor and his goodness and his promises. We were far from him, and he brought us near to himself by Christ. He knocked down every barrier that was keeping us from him by the cross of Christ. And he showers us with mercy every day because we're going to be honest, we're still Gentiles. We're still unclean and there's no reason except for the mercy and grace of God that he should ever invite us in, let alone invite us back in day after day after day. We have received undeserved love and life. It's given to us freely by the person and work of Jesus Christ not our own morality. So we ought not view others as unclean. Because that truth alone should make it just abundantly clear to us that all people are on equal footing before the cross of Christ. All men need the Savior. So go to all men for the sake of Christ and His gospel. Let's pray. Father, you are just abundantly gracious to us. We deserve hell and you give us Christ. We deserve to perish eternally. And not only do you give us salvation through Christ, but you give us the lives that we live. You shower us with common grace that we don't deserve, that the sun shines on us all, and that the the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You're more merciful to us than we could ever imagine, ever. Father, I appreciate everything you do for us. God, tear down the walls that are keeping us from other people. Destroy our prejudices and our biases. Help us to lean wholly on Christ and remember that we are wretches who have received undeserved mercy. And give us a Holy Spirit-induced desire to share the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. So, we usually do uh, worship right now, and Stephen's usually telling you this, this is kind of awkward for everyone, and you're probably wondering why my good friend Derek's on stage. Um, This is actually, I think this is like the first testimony that we've ever had at Revolution Church, which is pretty cool, um, because no one ever asks if they can say anything, so just throwing that out there, you're totally allowed to do this, just ask. Um, He has a, for a few minutes, he's wanting to share something uh, with you guys um, about the Lord's goodness. So, this is Derek. I know some of you know me, some of you don't, and as of late, I haven't been able to be here due to health reasons. past 10 months of my life have been pretty rough, from falling two stories to having a condition that shut down my kidneys and liver to now being hit by a bus. (laughs) And through all this, 
I've suffered with depression. I've suffered with pain every day. I mean, this has been pretty much my new best friend. And the one thing now that I've seen, even through all this, is my faith with God has grown stronger than anything. No matter how bad things may be in your life right now, no matter what you're going through, I know a lot of us say that we turn to God. A lot of us say that we pray. And I've prayed and prayed and prayed. And the one thing I've seen is that you may not see it right off the bat, but he is there for you. He's taken my pain away when I've been at the point of madness, even if just for a couple minutes. He's granted me the ability to still maintain working to pay the bills. And even when money's been hard, somehow it's always been there. Like the past 10 months of my life have been the, probably the worst and the best at the same time of my entire life. And it's due to God. Like, it's something that you can't describe, you can't really put words to. But I've had no worry. I've had no stress. He's taken all that from me. And I know every one of us deals with hardships. No matter how big or small they may seem to others, they're important to us. And I really want you guys to focus on the fact that prayer does work you may not see it at the time you may not see it at all but everything that you go through is for your better like the word is true everything that I've been through lately has changed my outlook on life fixed things and I pray every day that not to end the pain the suffering that I'm going through but for his will to be done because in the end, whatever I'm going through, he's going to make it right. And he has so far, and he continues to every day. And the other day at work, I called David. I wasn't able to make it here due to being on a truck. I'm a paramedic. And I just, I had an overwhelming urge to, like, tell you guys about all this. Like, not to speak to just anybody, but people here at Rev alone. And maybe this will hit one of you guys when you need it the most. Or maybe you'll be able to share it with somebody that does need it. I'm not much of a public speaker, but don't be afraid to, even if you come up here, talk about what's going on in your life. Because... I know the greatest gift I've had is that he's been with me throughout all of it, no matter what's happened. And it's so easy to blame things on God when something bad happens rather than to thank him. And that's been the biggest thing that I've learned is to thank him. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how hard everyday things are. I mean, I can't even get dressed by myself every day. And honestly, I thank him for the wife he's given me. And even if this was just to grow closer to him, I thank him for all the pain I've been through. I thank him for everything that I've been through every day. And I thank you guys for giving me your time and let me share this with you. Give God glory for that.